Good morning, my name is Paul Reese, and I'm the senior pastor here at Shark Chapel. Thank you to our musicians this morning for helping us uh, in singing God's praises. We're returning to the book of Isaiah this morning. We're going to uh, do the next chunk of Isaiah in our morning services. And I want you just to open your Bibles to page 690. Page 690. Just going to read five verses and then we'll pray. Isaiah chapter 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces. With two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying, and they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Almighty Lord, we come to you now and recognize that you are the one in whose presence we now sit. You are the same holy God. And we ask that you give us eyes to see your holiness. That you'd expand our brains and our comprehension to see that you are king of the nations. Lord, help us to live our lives in the awesome reality of who you are. In Christ's precious name. Amen. Well, we live in uh, momentous times. Uh, there's a lot going on in the Middle East at the moment. I want to put the, the map of the, the 21st century map of the Middle East. Next slide there. That's the world as we see it today. Uh, in this past week, Iran have been in talks in Moscow uh, with other uh, world nations to try and deal with the, the challenge of their growing nuclear ambitions. And there were no breakthrough talks. There was no breakthrough in the talks. And at the end of it, a high-ranking Iranian general said that if uh, the Israeli military were to take unilateral action and try and take out some of their enrichment bases, uh, that would mean the end of the Jewish state. An ominous threat indeed. Neighboring Iraq uh, continues to see uh, huge problems. Uh, There was uh, two bombs that went off in a market in Baghdad, killing 14 people, wounding 106 people uh, in the mainly Shiite Muslim neighborhood. And they suspect that it is the Sunni insurgents linked to Al-Qaeda that engaged in those bombs and probably have killed another 160 people this month in Iraq. 
they're trying to uh, weaken this, uh, this government that is trying to move them forward. In Turkey, uh, yesterday, the, uh, the president said that they would do whatever is necessary in response to Syria shooting down one of their military planes. In Syria, we've seen probably about 10,000 people uh, being killed uh, as they've tried to rise up and, and, and uh, rebels have tried to ask for a, a new leadership in Syria. We're seeing cracks developing in the military leadership uh, with senior leaders defecting to the rebels. Even one guy flying his MiG, pilot, uh, MiG plane into Jordan. Egypt, there have been tens of thousands continuing to meet in Tahir Square as they uh, fear that the, 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 the military are still trying to grab power in this process as elections are taking place. In Gaza, 120 rockets were fired by Hamas into Israel who have responded with Israeli warplanes. That's just this last week, folks, in this area of the Middle East. What's really going on behind the scenes? It all looks just a total mess, doesn't it? But we can know for certain that God is still in control. And the reason I say that is from the book of Isaiah. I want you to turn to uh, chapter 13, page 697. This is one of the big messages of this book, that God is king, king of the nations. You see, if we go on to the next map, this actually is a map representing the political shape of things in the 8th century BC, same territory. And the truth is, in the 8th century BC, the Middle East was in political turmoil. Some things don't seem to change. And as we read these events in the book of Isaiah, please know we're dealing with real history. You can go to the British Museum, you can see evidence of the Assyrian Empire, the Babylonian Empire. All these things we're talking about are not sort of uh, made up things in the Bible. These relate to real historical events. And in the 8th century BC, Assyria, you see that green area, Assyria was the superpower. And it had taken over Babylon, it had spread all the way down. It was a ruthless nation. Now, for you who grew up in Sunday school, do you know where Nineveh is? Nineveh is the capital of Assyria. You know Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh? It was the capital of Assyria there. It's in the center of it. Now, Assyria was a bloodthirsty conquest empire that just swept all before it. And that was the threat facing Judah. Judah also had problems with Egypt and Syria, and Babylon trying to agitate against this superpower. And there was tiny Judah stuck in the middle and looking as if it was weak and helpless against all these major powers that were uh, raged against it. And into this scene, Isaiah the prophet stood and offered the inside information about what was really going on behind the scenes. And he had this knowledge because he'd had this vision of the character of God. We just read it before we prayed. Uh, Last year, we looked at the first 12 chapters of Isaiah. And at the center of that is this incredible vision that Isaiah saw of the um, almighty God, the Lord of hosts, who had awesome power. And also, as we saw in that vision, he saw not only was, was God on the throne in charge uh, amidst all this chaos, 
that this God was also a holy God. And, and those twin themes of, of God being on the throne, that he's king of the nations, and that he is a holy God, is what propels the rest of his public ministry as a spokesman to Judah. And as we see, the implications of his message are not just for Judah. The fact that he is king and that he is holy has worldwide significance. It has eternal significance. And uh, Isaiah flags this up by uh, focusing our eyes in chapters 13 to 23 on these prophecies that Isaiah declares against the nations. And we're going to spend about five weeks uh, reviewing chapters 13 to 27. And today we're going to focus in on this prophecy about Babylon. So um, I'm going to read it, but before I do that, I want you to see uh, what's going to happen in 200 years' time. Look at the political scene in the 6th century BC. Next slide. So Isaiah is living and writing in the 8th century BC, when Assyria is the superpower. But as we read these words, which are actually quite brutal words, we need to bear in fact, bear in mind that that the Babylon will become the superpower, just as bloodthirsty, will overtake Assyria, will conquer all, uh, will be totally ruthless in what it, in what it does, and will be the, the empire that finally kind of destroys Jerusalem, destroys the temple, is merciless in killing men, women, children, babies, and carts off many of the best into exile. So that's, that's the picture that we need to keep in mind as we read Isaiah chapter 13. And Isaiah, as I said, writes before any of this has happened, before Babylon is even the superpower. And he prophesies a day when everything is going to change for Babylon. So listen out for the words about this day. Let me read Isaiah 13. An oracle concerning Babylon that Isaiah son of Amos saw. Raise a banner on a bare hilltop. Shout to them. Beckon to them. To enter the gates of the nobles. I have commanded my holy ones. I have summoned my warriors to carry out my wrath. Those who rejoice in my triumph. Listen. A noise on the mountains like that of a great multitude. Listen. An uproar among the kingdoms, like nations massing together. The Lord Almighty is mustering an army for war. They come from faraway lands, from the ends of the heavens, the Lord and the weapons of his wrath, to destroy the whole country. Wail, for the day of the Lord is near. It will come like destruction from the Almighty. Because of this, all hands will go limp. Every man's heart will melt. Terror will seize them. Pain and anguish will grip them. They will writhe like a woman in labor. They will look aghast at each other, their faces aflame. See, the day of the Lord is coming. A cruel day with wrath and fierce anger. To make the land desolate and destroy the sinners within it. The stars of heaven and their constellations will not show their light. The rising sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light. 
I will punish the world for its evil, the wicked for their sins. I will put an end to the arrogance of the haughty and will humble the pride of the ruthless. I will make man scarcer than pure gold, more rare than the gold of Ophir. Therefore, I will make the heavens tremble and the earth will shake from its place at the wrath of the Lord Almighty in the day of his burning anger. Like a hunted gazelle, like sheep without a shepherd, each will return to his own people, each will flee to his native land. Whoever is captured will be thrust through. All who are caught will fall by the sword. Their infants will be dashed to pieces before their eyes. Their houses will be looted and their wives ravished. See, I will stir up against them the Medes who do not care for silver and do not delight in gold. Their bows will strike down the young men. They will have no mercy on infants, nor will they look with compassion on children. Babylon, the jewel of the kingdoms, the glory of the Babylonians' pride, will be overthrown by God, like Sodom and Gomorrah. She will never be inhabited or lived in through all generations. No Arab will pitch his tent there. No shepherd will rest his flocks there. But desert creatures will lie there. Jackals will fill her houses. There the owls will dwell. And there the wild goats will leap about. Hyenas will howl in her strongholds. Jackals in her luxurious palaces. Her time is at hand. And her days will not be prolonged. The Lord will have compassion on Jacob. Once again, he will choose Israel and will settle them in their own land. Aliens will join them and unite with the house of Jacob. Nations will take them and bring them to their own place. And the house of Israel will possess the nations as men servants and maidservants in the Lord's land. They will make captives of their captors and rule over their oppressors. On the day the Lord gives you relief from suffering and turmoil and cruel bondage, you will take up this taunt against the king of Babylon. How the oppressor has come to an end. How his fury has ended. This is God's word. Now, did you notice uh, the repeated phrase, the day of the Lord. It is very important that we understand the meaning of that phrase, because what I want to show you uh, is that the events uh, prophesied here of the fall of Babylon is used in Scripture as a picture of the final day of judgment that will be over the whole earth. So as we look at this, it is a sort of a a pre-tremor that sets us up to understand and have categories of what God says about the final day of the Lord, the day of judgment. This chapter is so significant that it's quoted on at least six occasions in the New Testament. And so what I hope we want to do this morning is, that, is I want us to look at this pattern of what it means to be the day of the Lord and, and then to see how that will help us prepare for the final day of the Lord. That's what I want to do this morning. 
So firstly, the day of the Lord means inescapable judgment. That's what the first eight verses tell us. What uh, Judah and um, its people saw with their physical eyes was that they were like a tiny little nation uh, that would be trying to deal with all these empires jostling around them. And they looked pitiful and small and pathetic, and uh, they, they were the least significant thing on the planet. And what Isaiah reveals to God's people is that behind the scenes of what they could see with their eyes, God was in fact fully in control, moving nations and empires to fulfill his purposes for his people. Babylon that would eventually attack and defeat them as a nation. Before it's even happened, Isaiah says, they will in fact be destroyed by God. Incredible. And the day of the Lord is, is going to mean for Babylon that they will not be able to escape from his judgment. See, what does Isaiah see and hear? Have a look at verse 2. He sees a banner being raised on a hilltop. He hears a shout. He sees a hand beckoning. He hears uh, the sound of a vast army, a great multitude, many nations massing together. And whose hand is it that is beckoning this onslaught? It is the hand of God, who is portrayed as a divine warrior. Look at the end of, uh, of verse 4. The Lord Almighty, the Lord of hosts, the mighty hosts of heaven, the Lord who has a great army himself, is mustering an army for war. Verse 5, they come from faraway lands, from the ends of the heavens, the Lord and the weapons of his wrath to destroy the whole country. It is a terrifying picture of God who already has all the power of heaven beckoning and drawing upon all the armies and powers of earth to fulfill his purpose. In fact, verse 17 tells us who specifically is going to do it. See, I will stir up against them the Medes. The Medes were the empire to the north of the Assyrians that would eventually come in and conquer um, Babylon. But behind all of this, these huge movements, it is God's hand that is at work. It is God moving them about like chess pieces on a board. In fact, uh, Isaiah keeps using this phrase that uh, God is able to take up an empire uh, like a little boy takes up a stick and plays sword fighting. God can pick up a nation, use it as a stick, and break it whenever he wants. Uh, turn with me back to chapter 10. And see how he describes the Assyrian Empire in chapter 10, verse 5. Woe to the Assyrian, the rod of my anger, in whose hand is the club of my wrath. I send him against a godless nation. I dispatch him against the people who anger me to seize loot and snatch plunder and to trample them down like mud in the streets. But... This is not what he intends. 
This is not what he has in mind. His purpose is to destroy, to put an end to many nations. If you were to interview the general of the Assyrian army, saying, are you doing God's work? No, we're doing what we want. We want to conquest. We want to be bloodthirsty. We want to do this. But actually, behind the scenes, behind the free will of man trying to accomplish his own ends and purposes, God has a bigger purpose. God is picking up like a stick to do what he wants to accomplish. And as these nations pursue their own selfish and sinful agenda, God is in fact using them to accomplish his own purposes. Turn back to chapter 14 and uh, verse 24. Because it prophesies a day when God's going to deal with the Assyrians. 14.24 The Lord Almighty has sworn, Surely, as I have planned, so it will be. And as I have purposed, So it will stand. I will crush the Assyrian in my land. On my mountains I will trample him down. His yoke will be taken from my people, his burden removed from their shoulders. This is the plan determined for the whole world. This is the hand stretched out over all nations. For the Lord Almighty has purposed, and who can thwart him? His hand is stretched out, and who can can turn it back. Do you see how awesome God is? When we talk of Almighty God, uh, we're not talking about sort of a personalized God that's okay for you to believe in but doesn't really relate to me. We're talking about a God who is sovereign over all peoples, over all the earth, who is in control of human history, Isaiah uh, reveals to us. And just as he picked up the Assyrian stick and throws it away, this is exactly what God is going to do uh, with the Medes against the Babylonians. And when the day of the Lord comes for the Babylonians, his judgment will be inescapable. Look at how it's described in chapter 13 and verse 6. Wail for the day of the Lord is near. It'll come like destruction from the Almighty. Because of this, all hands will go limp. Every man's heart will melt. Terror will seize them. Pain and anguish will grip them. They will writhe like a woman in labor. They will look aghast each other, their faces aflame. The Babylonians will be totally paralyzed by terror. If we are God's enemies, and the day of the Lord is near, then we have much to fear. For the day of the Lord is described here as a day of destruction, a day of terror, a day of pain, a day of anguish, when we will be powerless against the Almighty God. That's what the day of the Lord means. And so can I say, can I ask you today, are you a friend of God or an enemy of God? And if you're an enemy of God, What are you trusting in to defend yourself against the Almighty God when He comes and brings this day of judgment? How do you know if you're an enemy of God? I mean, who is God opposed to? What is making God so angry against the Babylonians? Well, we see that in the second thing about the day of the Lord, that it is about the overthrow of human pride. That's what verses 9 to 22 are about. The verse 9. 
See, the day of the Lord is coming, a cruel day with wrath and fierce anger to make the land desolate and destroy the sinners within it. The stars of heaven and their constellations will not show their light. The sun rising will be darkened. The moon will not give its light. I will punish the world for its evil, the wicked for their sins. I'll put an end to the arrogance of the haughty and will humble the pride of the ruthless. See, the judgment of God will be like a reversal of creation. Though he made the stars and the sun to shine on the day of his judgment, they will be darkened. He created man to be in his own image, to be fruitful, to multiply, to fill the earth. But on the day of his judgment, mankind will be reduced to something scarce, verse 12, scarcer than gold. And everything, verse 13, that seems permanent to us will be shaken up at God's wrath. These verses are so sobering. Verse 14 tells us it will be a day of no protection. Verse 15, that it is a day of no escape. And verse 16, that it is a day of no mercy. It is, it is so hard to even read those verses about infants being dashed to pieces and all this sort of stuff. And why, why is this such a horrible and ugly day? It is because this is what people do to each other when they fully act out the wicked desires of their heart. This is what the Medes will do, verse 17. It is the Medes who will not, uh, verse 18, have any mercy on infants, who will not look with compassion on children. When the Medes go and attack the Babylonians, they, they, they are not puppets under God's hand uh, being forced to do what they do not want to do. Now, in fact, the horror of the day of judgment is that God removes his restraining grace and allows wicked, evil men to do exactly what they desire to do. Go back and explore any of the major conflicts that happen in the world and see these atrocious things happen in every single way. Because our evil, wicked hearts, when they're given their full reign, we will do the most sickest and horriblest things to each other. That is the awful condition of our hearts. This is the horror of God's judgment. He hands us over to do exactly what we want to do. And what is the cause of this terrifying judgment? Well, quite simply in these verses, it is our sin. And specifically verse 11, it is our human arrogance and our pride. I will punish the world for its evil, the wicked for their sins. I will put an end to the arrogance of the haughty, will humble the pride of the ruthless. The city of Babylon stood for the highest symbol in its day of human culture. Its hanging gardens were, the, um, were one of the ancient wonders of the world. And it also stood as a symbol of, of, of human power with its famed military might as the empire took over. But the truth is, its, its wealth, its culture, its glory was built on total ruthlessness, on evil 
and wickedness as they built this huge empire on bloodthirsty conquest that brutalized the surrounding nations. Just go to the just go to the British Museum and read what these guys say about what they do when they take over nations. They're not embarrassed. They're proud of their brutality. They stick it up there as propaganda to terrify the next nation that wants to mess about with them. And this has always been the case. It was Hitler who stoked the rise of nationalistic pride that viewed the Aryan race as superior over gypsies and Jews. It was Hitler's dream of a third Reich, a thousand-year glorious reign that was being built with war, suffering, hate, and genocide. Well, think about modern-day North Korea. You can go to the capital city, and it's quite impressive, apparently, and you'll see lots of... uh, You'll see golden statues of the beloved leaders. Um, You'll see massive displays of military might. And of course, it's built on the fact that the nation is starving. It's built on the fact that there are, there, there are known to be multiple prison camps where there are 50,000 people. There are prison camps the size of Los Angeles where people are literally being worked to death or even worse things are happening. The glories of North Korea are built on such ruthless brutality. And you know, this writ large is the ugliness of human pride when we treat ourselves as more significant than other people, when we are saying, look, I'm more important, I look down on you, in fact, I will do whatever it takes to get my way, and I'm willing that others get hurt in the process. That is the ugly reality of pride. You see it in the extremes of a president of a country who's willing to unleash his his army and militia to hold on to power. 10,000 of his own people just to hold on to power. And the God who is holy and loving cannot stand to see his creation so abused. To see such horrific injustice being committed by proud sinners. God opposes our pride because of the suffering that it causes in the world. But not only that, because whenever we engage in the sin of pride, we are seeking to make ourselves kind of rivals of God himself. That is the ugly truth of pride. Chapter 14 is largely made up of this taunt against the king of Babylon. It's almost too gruesome to read, but look at verse 12. How you have fallen from heaven, O morning star, son of the dawn. You've been cast down to the earth, you who once laid low the nations. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the mount of assembly, on the utmost heights of the sacred mountains. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the most well, that's the essence or the, uh, or the end consequence of pride. It is the foolish claim to be a rival of God. And I find it utterly fascinating that in the supposedly atheistic state of North Korea, they've sought to deify their leaders. Go and look on the YouTube. It's incredible. They unveil um, the, these golden statues of King Jong-il. Massive golden statues. So reminiscent of Nebuchadnezzar putting up his golden statue and asking all that would bow before it. 
what's going to happen to such tyrants? Verse 15, but you are brought down to the grave, to the depths of the pit. All our human arrogance, all our pride, whether we've been a dictator ruling a nation or, um, or we've had more modest pretensions, are all brought crashing down by death and the grave. What place does human pride have at death? It is of no value. It is of no significance as we stand before God to give account for our lives. Man is destined to die once, Hebrews 9.27, and after that, to face judgment. I once heard of a pastor who'd been asked to do a uh, funeral for one of the well-known city fathers in his city uh, who was not a believer. And the family wrote down a long list of his achievements and asked the pastor to read them out at the funeral, which he did. And at the end of reading this long list of, of, of achievements, he said, all of which is now completely irrelevant and ripped it up. Probably didn't get asked to do another one. But that's the truth, isn't it? All our pride, all our achievements, all that we would into glory in ourselves is nothing at the point of death. And God's judgment against sin and pride will be total. Look at chapter 14 and verse 23. I will turn her into a place for owls and into swampland. I will sweep her with the broom of destruction, declares the Lord Almighty. What an image that is. I will sweep her with the broom of destruction. What do you use a broom for? Well, you pick up all the big bits, don't you? And you put them in the bin. And you get the broom out just to sweep up all the tiny little bits left over. And it's all put in a pan so that the whole thing can be completely dumped. The destruction of Babylon will be total. Back at chapter 13 and verse 29, verse 19. Babylon, the jewel of kingdoms, the glory of the Babylonians' pride will be overthrown by God like Sodom and Gomorrah. The day of the Lord means the overthrow of human pride. But not only that, we also need to see the day of the Lord is not just a day of judgment, but it's a day of salvation. A day of salvation for God's chosen people. Look at chapter 14 and these three verses. If we ask the question, why all this judgment? One answer is, yes, God hates wickedness. He hates our pride and the suffering it causes. But then there's a further answer. He hates seeing his people suffer. And so he acts to remove all evil and wickedness from the world. To bring salvation and freedom to his people. Look at verse 1 again. The Lord will have compassion on Jacob. There's a little connecting word that hasn't been translated here that links why all this judgment? Well, before the Lord will have compassion on Jacob. Once again, he will choose Israel. 
And the amazing thing about this is it's not just the nation of, of Judah and Israel that will benefit, but the nations will benefit. Aliens will join them, not, uh, not green goblins from Mars, but uh, uh, foreigners from other nations will join them and unite with the house of Jacob. Nations will take them, bring to their own place, and the house of Israel will possess the nations. On that day, verse 3, the Lord will give you relief from suffering and turmoil and cruel bondage. Do you see that this salvation is the other side of judgment? Their suffering and their pain and their hardship is because they're being ruled by a cruel and ruthless empire and their salvation requires the complete overthrow of that empire in judgment. Now here's the amazing insight that Isaiah wanted his people to see and that God wants us to see today is that world history is being organized in the interests of the people of God. That's a stunning thought, isn't it? It's not something you'd see with your eyes, but this is what God is telling us from his word. The the events of world history is being organized in the interests of the people of God. The power that gathers nations to throw down empires, that breaks kings, is the power that is having compassion on his people. Do you think Isaiah went to Babylon to, to give this prophecy? I doubt it very much. These words were spoken for the benefit of the people in Judah. To tell them, whatever's going to happen to you, as you'll experience a judgment and exile and deportation, know this, that your final destiny is secure. The Lord, Yahweh, is king of the nations. And he will return you from exile. He will have compassion on his people. Well, that's the glorious message to Judah in Isaiah 13, 14. Now, why why spend time looking at this? Why this teaching on the day of the Lord? Well, because as I said at the beginning, here is a pattern that is helping us to understand the significance of what it means when the day of the Lord will come. There have been a number of days of the Lord, the overthrow of Assyria, of Babylon. But the Bible speaks of an ultimate day of the Lord where God's judgment will be upon the whole earth. And it will be a terrible day for those who remain proud of their sin and proud of their rejection of God's rule over their lives. And the truth is that when we lie, when we cheat, when we steal, when we fornicate, when we lust, when we harm others... Uh, in order to gratify our own pleasure, uh, live for ourselves, we're saying, I'm the center of the universe. I'm living how I want to live. I have no regard to what God has to say. I'm living in opposition to God. We may not think that's what we're saying, but that's what we're saying. We are proud and haughty in our sin. And these things don't seem a big deal to us now, but there will be a day coming when... All humanity will see that their sin matters to God. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 19. It gives an awesome picture of Jesus. Uh, Page 1248. 1248. 
Verse 11, I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse, whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Who is this divine warrior? It's Jesus, coming again. The divine warrior with the armies of heaven come to bring judgment upon the earth. Verse 15, out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Why spend time in Isaiah 13 thinking about Babylon? Well, because that picture of the day of the Lord is telling us that there is an ultimate day of the Lord coming. The divine warrior is returning, King Jesus, to meet out justice, to put down all evil and wickedness, to put down all proud and arrogant people so that his people can be freed from their oppression and brought into their full salvation and redemption. And what will defend defend you before King Jesus when he returns to execute his justice? What hope is there for us if we are proud and arrogant people? Well, our only hope is this, that if someone will endure the day of the Lord in our place. But who would do that? Who would be so kind to do that? Well, that is the wonder of the Christian gospel. That, that, that is my privilege today to, to tell you actually that we do not need to fear the day of the Lord, the day of his wrath, the day of his anger, because Jesus himself came the first time and experienced the day of the Lord for all those who put their trust in him. Have you ever thought about Mark 15? It was read to us earlier, the scene at the cross. Why was there darkness in the middle of of the day. Well, you know the answer now, don't you? you? You've seen it in Isaiah 13. On the day of the Lord, the, the sun is darkened. The light is hid. That is the day of the Lord, the day of his terrible judgment against pride and sin. And here is the incredible thing. The most humble, sin-free man goes to the cross and willingly substitutes himself in the place of proud, arrogant, haughty sinners and is willing to bear the day of the Lord, the day of his judgment, the day of his wrath in the place of sinners. The only way that you can stand and face and living uh, in the light of the day of the Lord coming is to have confidence that you've sheltered under the cross of Christ and that that day has nothing that causes you fear because it's all been paid. God's anger has been turned away from you because Christ took it in himself.
What position are you in today? The day of the Lord is coming. The day we will judge the whole earth. I know we look around us and we think, oh, everything's so permanent, nothing's going to change. Just think about those maps. Compare the 6th century, the 8th century, and the 21st century. 8th century BC, 6th century, and the 20th. It's all changed. Kingdoms come, kingdoms go. Things that look permanent are no more. And one day this whole earth will be wrapped up. And God's judgment will be poured out. And will you be standing on that day, proudly standing in your rejection of God, proud in your sin, proud in your arrogance? I want to say to you, that will be a terrible day of destruction and wrath. And why would you face that when Jesus himself has already come and in the cross provided a place of shelter and forgiveness so you could be right with God? That day of the Lord for his people is a day of salvation. Jesus quotes uh, this very um, uh, section of Isaiah in Mark 13. Have a look at this. In Mark 13, Mark's Gospel, page 1019. Mark 13, and look at verse 24, quoting from Isaiah 13. But in those days, following that distress, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky, and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, men will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And he will send his angels... And gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heaven. Can I urge you today to humbly trust in the Lord of the nations? To repent of your sin, to to come under the, the cover of the cross and receive the forgiveness of Christ today? And know that we are living now in the light of the day of the Lord that will surely come. The Lord Almighty has purposed who can thwart him. His hand is stretched out. Who can turn it back? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we know as we talk and think about, upon judgment, your judgment, the world mocks such a thing as it continues in its rebellion and rejection. And we want to thank you that as you prophesied would take place, it would take place and it did take place. And as if you said that Christ would come, he came and brought us forgiveness. And as you said he'll return again, he will surely come. Lord, help us to live in the light of the day of the Lord. Grant us grace to repent and trust Christ today, we pray. 
Give us full assurance and confidence in this mixed up and messed up world that you are still in control and working out your purposes. We ask this in Christ's precious name. Amen.